Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Rebecca Phillips. Rebecca is the Managing Director of Incom Training, a firm which offers a range of class leading services to businesses and apprentices. Rebecca, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. No problem, Scott. Lovely to be here. Likewise, it's a real pleasure having you on the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for different leaders of businesses, organisations, and of course, governments to feel their way through what's ultimately been an unprecedented crisis. We will touch on that in a bit more detail later on, of course. But if we begin the discussion by just looking at the word leader on its own for a moment, Rebecca. What does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, to me, uh, being being that person that's a leader, he's sort of providing the vision for the uh, the employees um, and the, uh, the pathway to move forward as a business, giving them sort of a role model to look to mm. um, and to see where we're going for the future. And if we think about your leadership style in terms of people management for a moment and how you work with colleagues. How would you describe that? Um, It's very much a team approach. Um, We all work as one um, and leadership, yes, is sort of as a a vision and to provide that vision for the business. But in terms of making sure that um, you take on everybody's views and and their ideas to move forward and collectively sort of get get everybody on board to do that. I think that's really important. Now, we can look at management and leadership as being two fundamentally different things. However, I think that there is an element of people management that has to come into the umbrella of leadership as a whole. And during this current period of, of course, COVID-19, I think that element of leadership has become incredibly important, especially since there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being at the moment. We have a lot of people who are very uncertain about the future, who will be looking to their leaders for a little bit of reassurance and a little bit of inspiration. And that responsibility falls on leaders to keep the communication channels open during this time and try to provide that, even though there is such a great deal of uncertainty. So that takes things as as well, such as transparency, honesty, and clarity, doesn't it? All very important elements. Certainly, yeah. I think I think the one big key thing through this issue that we've been struggling um, with in terms of our day to day routines is making sure that everybody understands what's going on and that those channels of communication are open. I think um, that alleviates most of anybody's fears as long as they can see what's going on and that you're providing that kind of reassurance, that communication channel, I think that's the major area we need to uh, we need to focus on through these times. And keeping the communication channels open in a remote sense, how have you found yeah. adapting to that challenge? Um, well, we've, we've gone through sort of um, weekly newsletters, emails, um, right the way through to doing um, Zoom calls as a collective, just to keep everybody up to date because it has been a fast-paced environment over the last few weeks. Um, trying to keep everything sort of going and, and sort of with changes from government government policy um, and what we're having to adhere to in terms of what we can deliver and where we can deliver. I think we, we sort of like check different channels through to depending on what level of communication is needed 
and the explanation and also being able for people to answer ask questions that you can ask, answer to them and mm. be totally honest about what information you're providing. Um, I think sort of sort of different channels of the different kinds of bits of communication have been really important. And I think one of the positives of this quite difficult and quite tragic time for everybody has been the need for businesses to innovate, perhaps where they hadn't innovated before, um, in order yeah. to, of course, continue to um, operate. And that's obviously affected um, everybody. But for someone working in your sort of line of work, delivering training, um, has that at all affected your provision? And have you moved more toward the online side of things you found during this time? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much from sort of day one, we flipped over to virtual classrooms and online learning um, platforms to deliver our programs. We've done a lot through um, virtual communications and, and, and virtual Zoom meetings to be able to deliver content. Um, but we're a very niche provider in terms of we deliver a lot of engineering manufacturing practical skills to our programs. And that has been obviously non-existent. So we've had to focus very much on the theory behind it and impinge that theory. We've been taking videos of processes. So we've had staff in, on, on their own going through processes of the actual um, making of parts so as we can actually put some um, visual to the theory to keep continuing and underpinning the knowledge um, that we're trying to get across. And um, So, yes, we've, we've had to sort of like pull certain um, aspects of delivery and sort of think outside of the box on how to help in aid the individual's um, grasp of this topic we're trying to deliver. It's all about flexibility uh, from that point of view, isn't it? um, Yeah. Even though it's far from ideal from what you've uh, told me there, Rebecca, do you think that under the new normal especially that such provision is something that you might persist with in the future even as things start to begin to resume again? Yes, absolutely. I think for, from a business point of view, we've seen the benefit in certain areas of keeping some kind of virtual and online platform going um, and, and sort of building on what we've started to do now. We can see the benefits of that for our learners for the future. And um, so there are certain aspects we're definitely going to keep within our programs because we've seen the benefits of them sort of immediately. And, um, Considering that there's been a great deal of debate about the clarity of government guidelines during this time, as things begin to reopen and revert to Mm -hmm. some kind of new normal, are you satisfied that you are fully aware of what exactly is expected of you to ensure that your premises are COVID secure and that you can sort of revert to operating almost as before? Or is that a little bit more difficult? No, no, absolutely. We're, We're quite aware with the guidance that's been issued, we're quite aware of what we can. Um, achieve safely um, and we've had our first cohort back in centre today actually mm. um, so we've, we've put all the measures in place that have been put towards us in the guidelines so they're back in centre, socially distanced Every the fortunate thing for us is that we have a piece of equipment for every learner so they're not sharing equipment, they're all they're all segregated on their own so they know what they need to do um, so no, we've, we've been fully aware of what we needed to do across the last few weeks to get to this position. And interestingly as well, um, the pandemic has also raised a bit of a question about a proactive approach versus a reactive approach. And we can look at that with the analogy of lockdown timing, which has come under huge scrutiny, of course. Yeah. So. In the UK, we did not begin our lockdown and introduce more stringent measures until the 23rd of March, of course. However, comparing that to, say, 
our European counterparts in Italy, their lockdown began as early as the 9th. So you could say it's fair to uh, probably um, explain it as a more laissez-faire approach that was taken by Boris Johnson and his government in that we had procedures and plans in place, but in many ways we were waiting for just a little while longer just to see exactly what happened before taking action from there. So maybe a little bit more of a reactive approach. Um, If we sort of take that idea of proactive versus reactive away from politics and away from COVID-19 for a moment, Rebecca. As and when difficulties tend to arise in the day-to-day running of the business, would you describe yourself as someone who is proactive and likes to jump in, get on top of difficulties as and when they arise? Or do you let things play out a little bit, see how things develop, and then take action from that standpoint? Um, I'm probably more airing on the side of the first one. We're we're very much proactive in the fact that we like to, to... to hit the, hit the ground running, stop mm. before it gets too far and put plans in place sort of beforehand and then change accordingly to what needs to thereafter. But we, we try to make that make sure that we're very much proactive. Um, and we did, before the, the, the lockdown happened, we did cease the, the youngsters coming into centre before we were mm. put into lockdown because we felt that we needed to um, act immediately. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that, a lot of businesses have been very proactive during this time and have introduced certain measures before even the government called its own lockdown. But other than that as well, business has also had to be adaptable, flexible and reactive in its own way because even though it's had its own procedures in place and made certain plans for certain eventualities, changing guidelines and changing circumstances do require a degree of flexibility, don't they? And that's been a difficulty, but I suppose that for those businesses that do manage to get through this, the experience Mm -hmm. of crisis management is going to bring a renewed sense of resilience. It's going to be vital experience for the leaders of those businesses and and their employees in terms of character building and them having to indeed go out of their comfort zones and really push the boundaries to keep things ticking over. That's going to be a hugely beneficial experience uh, for them, if still quite a challenging one. Yes, absolutely. I think um, we were we were pleasantly surprised with the the way staff managed to cope with the change, um, and that we we feel we've had a much better experience than we very much thought at the outset of this we were going to get. Um, I, I have to say it, it's been sort of astounding how staff have actually coped with the change of working from home and and sort of the ideas that they've come up with to make the changes much more healthy for the learners and um, to carry on with their programs. So yes, it's been it's been a real eye opener, but for the for the um, the more positive than we very much thought in the first place. It's often said, isn't it, that times of adversity do really bring out the best in people in that sense. And hopefully that continues certainly to uh, to be the case. And if we do, of course, address what the future is going to hold as well, Rebecca, before we do wrap things up on the uh, other programme today, um, I'd be interested to understand what you envision over the next year for yourself and for Incom Training and what you hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic and hopefully emerge from it and look toward the long term future under the new normal and what that might bring. Yeah, I think we're very much um, speaking to our employers at the moment, looking at what their plans are for the next sort of interim and to the longer term futures. And a lot of obviously our companies are engineering manufacturing companies and trying to see where that they can reshore their products back into the UK. So how we can help them with um, their, their skills, their knowledge going forward. So apprenticeships, what are they looking to recruit? What areas are they looking to recruit? How can we help? Sort of navigate the programs 
to help businesses uh, move forward. So that's where we're positioning ourselves at the moment and working with our employers to make sure that sort of in 12, 18 months' time, we're in a much stronger position um, coming out of this, uh, this current situation. And let's certainly hope that income training can really hit the ground running as we do emerge from this. And, you know, um, Rebecca, I think given how informative it's been having you on the air with us to discuss some of these issues today, it would be fantastic, not just for myself, but also from a listener's point of view, to actually catch up in future and have you back on in a few months just to see how things are getting on in that respect. Yeah, that'd be lovely. I think it would be as well. Um, as I say, it's been hugely informative and hugely insightful actually having you on the other programme with us uh, today. So it certainly would be a real pleasure having you on again. And most importantly, in the meantime, until we do touch base again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this COVID-19 situation as of yet. Yeah. Thanks ever so much, Scott. That was Rebecca Phillips speaking, the Managing Director of Income Training. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his playing days, he became part of an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. During his tenure, he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Quite impressive. And I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. 
and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game and I was also I think mature enough to understand um that this was a great opportunity for me but not to get carried away with it which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players without a doubt and I think in those early years of your career it's so important I think you'd agree especially when you're learning from other more experienced people this can be true of any field whether it's sports or politics or business um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that 
just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, Absolutely. and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and 
mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but hmm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But 
actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death. And, yes. you know, effectively, 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um 
you know, we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the Big Bash, and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.